so my name is Jason Berger. Um, we are here with uh, Christian Conroy, who is another... Um, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm Christian Conroy, also with Georgetown Public Policy Review. Okay. And we are here with Mr. James Barber, the uh, um, the the spokesperson and head of press and public diplomacy at the delegation of the European Union to the United States. Indeed. Bit of a long title, but great to be here with you both. <laughs> and thank you so much for taking the time. We really, really appreciate Not it. Not at all. Um, so first, um, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? How did you come to work in public diplomacy, and how would you define it? Okay, well, let me give you the, the short version, because I've, I've been a diplomat now for very nearly 20 years, so that's quite a long story to tell. But I, I'm career UK Foreign Service. I joined the UK Foreign Service um, straight after my master's degree. Um, and I've served in various countries. I've served in South Africa. I've served in Russia. I've obviously served at headquarters in London, um, and most recently here in the US, where I came as press secretary to the British Embassy in 2011. Um, I served three and a half years there before moving just a couple of miles down the road to my current perch at the EU delegation. So it's a it's a slightly convoluted route to where I ended up. Um, how did I end up in public diplomacy? Well, it's um, it's almost kind of happenstance. The one thing that we diplomats are always supposed to be good at is is everything. You're supposed to be a jack of all trades. Um, and various of my jobs have had an outward facing element. So when a role came up, um, I guess 2004, somewhere around about there. Um, as one of the chief press officers to the then British Foreign Secretary, I thought that sounds like fun. I like doing outward-facing stuff. I like people. I like media. So I, I kind of fell into it that way, and discovered that actually I, I rather enjoy the the outward-facing, the public aspects of of the job. You know, a lot of a lot of diplomacy is still conducted behind closed doors. It's you know negotiations mm-hmm. at the UN or it's bilateral discussions with your host government. Um, but I find myself drawn to the the public discourse, and particularly here in the US, and we can get onto this a bit more, but particularly here in the US where you have a, a culture of kind of outsourcing policymaking. You know, you've got the, the nexus between government and think tanks and the kind of revolving door between government, think tanks and industry that you don't really have in many other countries in the world. So the fact is that if you, if you want to engage in any kind of policy debate here in the US, then there is a very large public diplomacy aspect to that, and that's what I enjoy. Okay. Um, have- why, why do you think that is? Why do you think in the U.S., why do you think we in the U.S. outsource our policy as opposed to, I guess, in countries in the European Union, um, where I, I, I'm not entirely familiar, but mm. why, why do you think there's that, that difference? Well, you still have quite a large think tank culture in, in a number of European countries. I mean, if, if you think particularly of, for example, Germany, mm-hmm. where you have some, some very well-known global um, think tanks and policy shop headquartered there. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? You, you outsource policy thinking here because you have such very good policy thinkers um, right. within the DC area. But a lot of it, I suspect, is to do with the, the association with the federal government. You have um, you know, organizations such as the US Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson Center and various others that have a, a direct or indirect, indirect link with, with the federal government, whereas many other European countries, there isn't that. So think tanks have to set themselves up independently, find their own independent source of funding. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's chicken and egg. I'm not sure whether you have such a large policy community here in D.C. Mm-hmm. because government likes to outsource policy thinking, or whether it's government likes to outsource policy thinking because they've got right. so many good thinkers here in this city. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, so let's... I also want to ask you about um, your specific responsibilities as the spokesperson and head of press um, and public diplomacy at the delegation of the European Union to the United States. Um, can you just talk about your job a little bit, mm. what you do exactly? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the job wears, to use the awful metaphor, I, I have 
any number of different hats during the course of the day. Um, you know, the the first and probably most obvious um, word in my in my job description is spokesperson, and that's the easy one. That's um, you know there are two people in the delegation authorized to speak on the record to the media, which is the ambassador and myself. Mm-hmm. So if you're a journalist and you want to call me and ask me what the latest you know what our latest views are on Syria or on TTIP or on migration or on the economy or you know any of the kind of mm-hmm. hot topics that are in the media today, um, then I will deal with that I will either direct you to one of my press team or I'll deal with it myself um, and we do that both on or off the record and actually sometimes I'm not telling you anything you don't already know but sometimes the, the off the record briefing with media is far more useful and far more productive than the on the record stuff Right. Um, that's the easy bit but the the rest of it I mean you can define press and public diplomacy in so many different ways and here we define it very broadly um, so I have a, a relatively large team I have 18 people plus a couple of interns um, and we, we cover Everything from, as I said, you know, the, the reactive and proactive press work, the, the on and off the record briefings, the reaching out to journalists and trying to persuade them to cover European issues that mm-hmm. we feel aren't being given the attention we'd like them to have. Um, try and encourage people to look a bit more at the issues that we as Europeans care about. But then also we work with the whole spectrum of the academic community, both in terms of K-12 through and in terms of um, the tertiary sector. Mm-hmm. We work with, as we've already said, the think tank community. And we, we do a lot of event-based public diplomacy ourselves here at the delegation. We have a fantastic event space on the ground floor. Um, we develop policy events with various partners at various other venues here in D.C. But just as important as that is the stuff that we do outside of Washington, outside of the Beltway. Is, um, everyone uses that expression, the Beltway bubble, and it's, it's very, very true. Um, that we we diplomats have a habit sometimes of thinking we're engaging with the US and actually we're engaging with a bunch of like-minded people inside the the 495 echo chamber (laughs) so we do an awful lot around the around the United States Mm. um, both ourselves and through partnerships with EU centers of excellence at various universities through um, the consulates general of various EU member Mm. states around the country and through traveling ourselves so I'm very often getting on a plane to go and give a talk on the west coast or whatever it is because Mm. it's it's important to us to reach the people that we care about on the issues that we care about, not just in D.C., but all over the country. Right. Um, So something that you said that I I found to be um, interesting, and this will be more of a two-part question. Mm. Um, So while I was doing research for this podcast, um, I found it quite interesting that within the U.S., TTIP is not getting any coverage barely any at all. Well, I mean, obviously the election and TPP are um, taking taking over. Um, and I was wondering if you could ex- explain that a little bit more. Um, is Do you think there's, a, there's just a lack of interest in it? I mean, I, I find it that it's, you know, something that's going to be very important coming up, especially with the, the next administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first part of the question. Um, but then also, I guess it would be good to mention to our listeners what TTIP is, um, and why you think it's going to be so important for the EU as long as it's ratified. Um, and um, what do you think that the, the ratification of TTIP would mean for the economies of the EU and the US? Okay, there's a lot there, so let's try and unpack <laughs> yeah, I'm, it. I'm sorry, I know it's a very long question, um, and that first part of it was no, obviously... It's, it's a very important question. Yeah. Um, TTIP, for the benefit of the listeners, is the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Um, now we've been, we Europeans have been kicking the idea, kicking around the idea of some kind of EU-US free trade agreement for a very long time, and it, it, we we diplomats love our acronym, so we initially started calling it TAFTA in terms of Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement. The, the term TTIP was actually um, first time we heard it was in the State of the Union address in 2012, mm-hmm. when President Obama floated the idea of a transatlantic trade and investment partnership, and that kind of crystallised all the thoughts we've been having about how to do free trade between the EU and the US. Um, 
under that one banner, if you like, of TTIP. So what is it? Well, it's it's difficult to define what it is because it doesn't yet exist. So right. you, you talk about ratification, but actually we're still at the negotiation stage. And trade agreements take a long time. You know, trade agreements right. take 7, 10, 15 years, and we're only two or three years into to negotiating TTIP. But what we want it to be is an all-encompassing agreement that breaks down the remaining barriers between trading between the EU and the US. And it's important to stress that we're talking about remaining barriers because there aren't many. There aren't many barriers, certainly in terms of tariff barriers and import levies and all that kind of thing. There aren't many, but what we're looking at more is commonality of standards. The the classic example that people give, and I've spoken a lot to people in the automotive sector, both here and in Europe, is you know if you if you manufacture a BMW 3 Series, you can make it in Spartanburg in um, is it North or South Carolina, I forget, or you can make it in... Um, in Germany, and you have to make it to two different sets of standards. You've got to have a wing mirror that's slightly different for the US market to the EU market. You've got to have a right. turn signal that's slightly different for the US market and the EU market. The car does the same thing. It's basically the same vehicle, but I think it's something like a couple of thousand components are very subtly different. Um, there's huge amounts of expense there, not just in producing the componentry, but in terms of development. Why would you bother developing two separate headlights for two separate markets, two separate airbags for two separate markets, when ultimately it does the same thing? So those are the kinds of barriers we're trying to break down. Pharmaceutical labeling is another one. You, know, you, you buy an aspirin here, you buy an aspirin in Europe. It's exactly the same thing. But that product has to be tested and labeled in two separate ways under two separate regulatory regimes in order to be marketed in the two separate markets. So those are the sorts of barriers we want to try and break down. Um, obviously, there are areas that um, are slightly more difficult to, to negotiate and to talk about. Food safety is one. Food labelling is another. You know, um, There are various different what we call geographical indicators that the Europeans are very fond of and actually that the Americans are very fond of. So um, different types of cheese from different regions, different mm-hmm. types of meat from different regions that right. all bear the geographical name. So those are the sorts of issues that we have to negotiate on. We have to negotiate to make sure that um, what we're doing is as well as achieving commonality of standards, we're raising standards across the board rather than lowering them, um, particularly in terms of environmental standards, labour standards, and so on. So there's, there's a lot of work. I suppose that's the tr- point I'm trying to get across. Yeah. There's a hell of a lot of work that goes into negotiating a trade agreement. Right. Um, we don't have one yet, so it's very difficult to be for or against TTIP. It's very difficult mm. to talk about ratifying or not because we've had a number of negotiating rounds, but we will have a number more. Um I think that answers the second part of your question. But the first part of the question, which is why is it not getting as much coverage as it was? Partly it's down to your own political cycle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you look at, and I've got my TV off at the moment because we're doing this interview, but right. I normally have M- MSNBC running all day. Yeah. And yeah, I don't see a single item about TTIP because what I see at the moment is entirely about your, your general elections and 95% of the time. <laughs> um, TTIP has, well, trade agreements as a whole have been a little bit of a hot potato issue during this election campaign. Um, and for that reason, we have perhaps sort of rode back a little bit from the, the sort of work we were doing about TTIP. It's worth saying that probably if you speak to um, if you speak to media outlets around the country, you'll get a slightly different response on TTIP to what you get here. Because when we travel around the US, we meet with local chambers of commerce, we meet with manufacturers and employers, and they are very keen to talk to us about the potential benefits that TTIP can bring to their markets, to their labour force, you know, what potential exports, what potential contracts can they bid in terms of public procurement in Europe, all these kinds of things. And they want to talk to us about their concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no shying away from the fact that TTIP will mean adjustment in um, in the economies on both sides. Now, we firmly believe that it, 
the overall benefits are tremendous. You know, depending on whose figures you believe, two or three percent on top of um, the really quite small growth rates that we have at the moment is huge. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that there will be adjustments. There will be people that have to um, you know look at their supply chain and so on and so forth. So. When, whether it's the ambassador or our trade councillor or myself or whoever, when we travel around the country, we like to listen to local chambers of commerce, local employers, local businesses, European businesses headquartered in that part of the US, Mm -hmm. to hear about what what their TTIP questions and concerns are. And that's where I think you see rather more in the way of constructive reporting about the potential benefits of this agreement as and when we get it done. Okay. Very good. To, to follow up on, on um, this question about you know the fact that it's still in this negotiation stage, mm. um, I know recently you had um, there's been a lot of conversation about it's almost this predecessor agreement, the CETA, right with with Canada, mm-hmm. um, and I know a lot of people are connecting the success of the CETA with the potential success after negotiation of TTIP. So how do you kind of see? Um, those two is being connected. Um, for example, I know the German Social Democratic Party leader, uh, Sigmar Gabriel, came mm-hmm. out and said that CET is dead. Does this kind of put the TTIP negotiations in a kind of dead-in-the-water position, or how do you think those two are interrelated? No, I think there's a little bit of hyperbole there, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not going to go on the record and disagree with Sigmar Gabriel because that's a very dangerous thing to do, but I think <laughs> yeah, that... Um, CETA, and from the, again, for the benefit of your listeners, that's the right. Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between the European Union and Canada. Um, it's not dead in the water at all. I mean, we, we have a couple of, and I don't want to belittle them, we have a couple of fairly substantial objections mm-hmm. from a regional parliament in Belgium. Right. Um, we are reasonably confident that those can be worked through. The question really is, in the, is on the, the time frame within which they can be worked through. Um, and it, it may take us some time to go back and sit down and address those particular mm-hmm. concerns. But so much work has gone into CETA now that I think to say it's, it's dead in the water mm-hmm. is to abandon all those, those years of work that have gone into it. It is true to say that if we get it right and once we get it, um, get it done and get it implemented, yes, it will be a model um, because CETA is a really good agreement and it has exactly the sorts of things I was talking about earlier in terms of the, the protection of environmental and labour standards mm-hmm. and so on built into it. So let's get it done, let's get it right, and then it does become a model for what a potentially very far-reaching TTIP might look like. Okay. Now, to, 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 to prod further on that, you know, I, I, coming from the, the U.S. perspective, obviously, in this time of election, we have, you know, constant bickering about TPP, NAFTA, etc., and about some of the problems behind a lot of these um, agreements. And I think a, a substantial portion of it is often misinformation and, and fear-mongering to a large degree. But then there are also legitimate concerns mm-hmm. about you know, jobs disappearing, income distribution, um, things of that nature. So what do you think needs to be done in terms of salvaging CETA and paving the way for a successful TTIP? Do you think there's a lot of just information campaigns that need to go into effect? Or do you think there's real areas of compromise to change the actual kind of text and nitty-gritty of the agreements as they exist? It's perhaps a little bit of both, but I, I think the first point is the far more salient one here, which is that we need to realize that there is a, a PR job, if you like, to be right. done. There is a, a public information job that needs to be done to explain the benefits of these trade agreements to people. You know, trade agreements are a very kind of convenient political whipping boy at the moment. Um, you can bash NAFTA, you can bash TPP, you can bash various other trade agreements. Um, but trade is the engine of global economic growth. You need trade agreements to manage it. You need trade agreements to get it right so that you don't have dumping, you don't have a race to the bottom in terms of labour and environmental standards. Um I think perhaps one of the errors that 
we may have made, or that those of us in favour of agreements like TTIP may have made, is to assume that everyone agrees with us. Because that's not always the case. And it's, it's very easy for those of us that work on the policy side to think, well, everyone knows that free trade is great, so let's just get on and do it. We need to explain better to our constituents that we are taking their concerns on board as we craft these agreements. And whether it's the environmental lobby, whether it's the geographical indicator lobby, whoever it is, they have their concerns. And those of us working on the trade agreements need to legitimise those concerns, need to show that we are listening to those concerns and show that they've been taken on board. Um, Because otherwise, you end up in a situation at the moment where you have quite large, and let's give them credit where credit's due, you have quite large swathes of society um, who claim to be against TTIP. If you actually sit them down and ask them what TTIP means, they can't tell you because it doesn't yet exist. They can look at the negotiating mandate, they can look at the conclusions from the various different negotiating rounds. And there's not much in there really that you can object to, but it's it's the public information that I think has been perhaps a little bit lacking, mm-hmm. which makes yeah, that, that leaves a space, if you like, for those that object to come out with and I don't want to accuse anybody of misinformation, but to, to come out with conjecture, to come out with speculation about what the ultimate agreement might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is that you know, we, we're not going to agree to a trade agreement that is potentially damaging to the environment. We're not going to agree to a trade agreement that lowers food or drug safety standards on either side of the Atlantic. It's just not going to happen. That's not why we do these things. But we need to get much better at explaining mm-hmm. to those with concerns both what the benefits of these trade agreements are, but also that their concerns are being taken on board. So do you think that um, that the lack of understanding is a result of um, these recent populist-inspired isolationist movements that have recently popped up in Europe and the United States? Um, you know, I'm, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Donald Trump, um, to a lesser extent, Bernie Sanders, um, Brexit, for example. Um, and then secondarily, do you think that these populist inspire isolationist movements um, they could have a negative effect on EU-US relations wow where to start with that one um, <laughs> I mean I, I'm not sure I would necessarily call them isolationist movements there, there has certainly been a growth in populism arguably on both sides of the Atlantic I've seen it in my own country with the, the Brexit referendum earlier this year um, I think the illustrative point there is that the those in positions of power, those at the sort of governance level, perhaps could listen a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I include myself in that as a civil servant. You know, it's, it's our job to listen to our stakeholders. Um, if our stakeholders are expressing their unhappiness, then that perhaps suggests that we are either not listening to them as well as we might, or we're not communicating with them as well as we might in a, in a two-way sense. Um, what was the second part of that question? Um, the second part was, do you think that... Um, that these populist movements, um, just because of their isolationist nature, could have a negative effect on EU-US relations in the future? Um, I would like to hope that EU-US relations um, are so well entrenched that they can transcend the the challenges of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, the, the meeting I was just in immediately before this was talking about the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. Um, you know, the EU and the US, to borrow one of your expressions, we go way back. Um, you know, we've we've been friends for a long time, and I think it was the, the vice president who is very fond of referring to us as best friends of first resort. Um, you know, you you can't deal with the challenges facing the world today in isolation. Mm-hmm. We, the Europeans, can't. You, the Americans, can't. You know, the the days of the sort of big isolationist superpower are are long gone. Um, 
and I think certainly at a at a political level at a policy making level the Europeans and the Americans very much understand that this is a mutually reinforcing um, mutually supportive relationship yeah we work together on so many different issues um, you can take the the JCPOA the, the Iran nuclear deal as an obvious example where that wouldn't have happened if you had not had both the Europeans and the Americans at the table with the European Union as the, as the kind of facilitator of the talks and kind of metaphorically locking the door and saying no one's leaving the room until you kids have sorted things out right so Yes, you've got the growth of populist movements and you can argue whether or not they are isolationist but the fact is that you also have so many challenges around the world. Climate change is, is another hugely important one um, which we got to work together on and at some point you have to transcend the kind of political difficulties of the day and realise that in order for the EU and, U- and the US to realise their and the goals are actually shared in terms of prosperity, improving climate, all that kind of stuff. We've got to work together on this, and I think we will continue to do that. Very good. To, to address kind of the, the elephant in the room here um, with, with Brexit in this case, um, you, you mentioned that, you know, obviously the, the two countries go way back to, to open it up towards kind of a broader question. How do you see the U.S. diplomacy with the U.K. or with the EU changing, if at all, um, based on the, the referendum in the U.K.? So I have to be very careful here um, and explain very clearly which hat I'm wearing, um, sure. which is that you know I'm, I'm sitting here speaking for the European Union. Right. My accent slightly gives away which country <laughs> I'm from, um, but I, I do need to reinforce that I'm not here speaking for the UK. Sure. Um, what I would say on Brexit, and I'm probably not going to go anywhere as near as far as you would like me to, um, is to kind of reiterate the previous point that transatlantic relations will remain of paramount importance in addressing the the global threats and challenges of the the coming years and decades. The US needs to frame its relations with the UK and the EU accordingly, and likewise the UK needs to frame its relationship relationship with the US and with the EU accordingly, and the EU Mm -hmm. exactly the same. Those relationships will continue to be tremendously important. The UK will continue to place huge value on what it calls the, the special relationship with the US, and vice versa, I'm sure. So, Brexit is, and you can you, know, you can ask the Brits what they think about it. You can ask various Europeans what they think about the the UK potentially leaving the European Union. But I think, in terms of facing up to, to global challenges, those relationships mm-hmm. remain incredibly important. And to connect this back to kind of our original topic about the uh, about TTIP and these ongoing negotiations, you cited earlier in our conversation this two to three percent um, increase centered around the. Um, uh, potential successful passage of TTIP. Mm. A lot of the statistics out there currently um, that look at the benefits of TTIP have asterisks that say, well, this number was calculated pre-referendum. Mm. Um, so how do you think that referendum affects kind of the overall strength of, the, of, of TTIP and how easy or hard it is to sell to the respective sides of the deal? Well, again, you need to ask the, the UK what they feel about mm-hmm. their future trading relationship with the United States. Sure. Um, and I know that the UK is very keen to negotiate bilateral and multilateral trading deals um, within whatever fra- trading framework it finds itself um, at the conclusion of Article 50 negotiations. I think TTIP remains tremendously important. Obviously, if you remove a major trading partner from TTIP, then the, the complexion of it changes slightly, and particularly on issues such as public procurement, where the, the UK is, a, at the moment, a fairly large component of that. Um, but let's not forget that the UK remains an EU member state um, until, as and when it formally withdraws. Sure. So you know, I, I get back to the sort of existential point that we were talking about with TTIP right at the beginning, which is it's difficult to 
frame and define something which is still being negotiated and has yet to be concluded. Um, I think the UK withdrawal from the European Union obviously does change the complexion of TTIP slightly, but it still makes it a very attractive prospect for, mm-hmm. for everybody involved. Sure. Um, so I, I, I know you're a very good, busy guy, so we I think we have to um, start wrapping up. But before we do, um, the, I don't know how often you listen to podcasts, um, but Ezra Klein has an excellent one. And at the end of each of his interviews, he likes to ask his guests, um, what are three books or three white papers that um, that the principal would recommend to his listeners? Um, and I'd like to ask you the same question, um, especially because a, a primary <laughs> audience is a bunch of policy nerds. Um, so if you have three books um, that you've either read recently or white papers that you've re- read recently um, or just in your lifetime, what would be very helpful that you would recommend? All right. Well, again, for the benefit of your listeners, we're sitting in my office, which overlooks Washington Circle on the intersection of 22nd and K. I'm going to get up very briefly and go over to my bookshelf. Because <laughs> right sure. <laughs> there are three things that I want to show you. Cool. Third one might actually be hiding under your microphone. There we go. So, off the top of my head, three things that I think are worth reading. Um, okay. This one, Conciliary by Richard Hitler, is just a, a fantastic book in terms of workplace dynamics. Um, I met Richard, gosh, a couple of years ago, and he gives a, a tremendous account of the the value and the contribution of the kind of the man behind the man, if you like, or the woman behind the woman, the, the person in the chief of staff role, the person in the in the advisory role, and particularly having spent five and a half, nearly six years here in Washington, I, I found it a, a fantastic read. So that's that's one. Um, number two is actually, it's a European Parliament publication called Mapping the Cost of Non-Europe. Um, it's a, it's a, a bit of a counterfactual that um, shows you just the huge benefits that the European Union has brought and continues to bring in terms of social standards, economic standards. Yeah, we're, we're very good at saying the EU has brought whatever it is, seven decades of peace, and we talk about winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012. But this this gives you hard economic data and hard figures about just how beneficial the European Union has been. And then item three, I'm going to let you read out the title, and you'll have a little chuckle to yourself. It says, the European Union, a guide for Americans. <laughs> so this I is part this. of this the, is the public information work that we do here at the delegation. This is a, an in-house product um, that's written by one of our exceptionally experienced and very highly regarded members of staff here. And it explains the morass of European institutions and legislation and everything that we care about and stand for in terms of values in hopefully quite an accessible way. Now, the, the European Union is not the easiest beast to understand. Um, we have to explain to people the difference between the Council of Europe and the European Council, and we have to explain to people what the European Parliament is and the European Commission, and so on and so on and so on. Um, this does all of that for you, and it does it in a fairly accessible format. I'm going to give you a little plug and say you can download a PDF version of it at <laughs> euintheus.org. I was, was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have paper copies here. If you come along to our various events, you can pick one up. Okay. All right. And we'd love to come to one of those events. We would. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, Well, thank you so much. Um, Again, this is Mr. James Barber, and he is the spokesperson and head of press and public diplomacy at the delegation of the European Union to to the United States. Thanks, folks. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. tuning in to this episode of the gppr podcast i hope you enjoyed it if you're interested in more check out gppreview.com our facebook page gpp review and our twitter at 
GP Policy Review.